Hello and welcome to the Pet Industry News Podcast. My name is Thomas Oakley-Newell and today we are delighted to be joined by Nathan Oliveri, CEO and co-founder of RightPaw. Cheers for joining us, Nathan. No worries, Tom. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. So RightPaw is a platform that connects potential dog owners with responsible breeders. Um, It's a fantastic initiative, I think. Not only with all the scams we have at the moment, but also ensuring the animal's welfare. Can you just tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind it? Absolutely. And um, it's definitely something that in the last couple of years has become even more important and pertinent. But it's an idea actually that we had for a little while and, and it was really inspired by one of our team members, uh, Dr. Imogen, who's uh, our vet in the team. And it actually came about because of all of the issues, the plethora of issues that she would see in the vet clinic day in, day out. She'd see animals with health issues or behavioral issues, you know, dogs that unfortunately might have to be abandoned. She would see all this come in and think to herself, well, in many ways, it's too late in the process you know, for me to, to solve these issues. And actually, a lot of the issues that I could be fixing happen much earlier in the journey. So, matching the right owner with the right dog and making sure that the pups are coming from responsible homes, that's almost where the biggest impact can be made. And this sort of kernel of an idea came about, which was that actually the single biggest difference you can make to a dog's life is at the very beginning. And yet, that is almost a bit of a blind spot in the industry. You know, it's, it's almost a bit of a, a wild west, we often joke. And that's almost where you can make the biggest difference, but it's also where there's the most unknowns. And that sort of then gave way to, well, there's a, a social you know, impact you can make there, but there's also a real yeah, industry and business problem, which is finding a great breeder is a really hard thing to do. There's a lot of trust issues. It's hard to know what you're looking for. The the information out there isn't always the most up to date. So, you know, what started as really a probably more of a social problem ended up becoming actually, well, there is a functional problem here that we can solve and, you know, we can use technology to make even better. So, so that's a little bit about how we came about and, and ultimately our mission, which is to help every dog and owner start off on the right paw. And that's sort of how the name came about as well. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a good name. So, what kind of issues would uh, have an irresponsible breed to lead, breeder lead to in dogs? Ultimately, if um, a breeder hasn't done, for example, the right level of health testing as a starting point. So, you know, uh, health testing as a health testing parents means that the litters ultimately are going to be healthier as a result because they've made the right you know planning and matching combination from the very outset. So that means that the pups are going to be healthier, which obviously leads to a healthier dog over its lifetime. The effort that's put into socializing and raising the puppies as well can mean that the pups have less behavioral issues, they're more well socialized, better temperament for their lifetime as well. So, reputable breeders will be doing more of that focus. And also just, I mean, even the the basic things like ensuring that they're raised in a in the right environment, that they are, you know, ultimately, yeah, providing the right level of care. Those issues can be really solved right at the early stage. And, and if you're buying from a reputable breeder who cares about welfare and health testing and, you know, creating a, a longevity in their breeding program, you're ultimately going to end up with a, a you know a better family pet for you for the long term. So yeah, the effort that those breeders are putting in can really mean that you're having the best possible result for your family pet. And how does Rightpaw go about finding reputable breeders and how does a, how does a breeder become registered with Rightpaw? What we have you know, tried to do as a platform is basically ensure that every breeder who's featured on our site has gone through our verification process. So, we vet and verify every breeder that you see if you go onto our website today, each of them have passed our process. And that basically involves them firstly signing up with us and 
you know, completing our profile so we know a little bit about them. But then they go through a verification call with one of our team. And that involves going through a few checks and balances. So we check firstly their state registration, make sure that they're registered and they're visible, you know, as a bare minimum. We go through our code of ethics with those breeders and, and we've put together the code of ethics based on you know, what we believe is best practice from state legislations, from association guidelines, everything that breeders should be doing, we believe, to be meeting those standards as a responsible breeder. We also verify their health tests. So any health test that they select on their profile so they can tick the different health tests that they're conducting, we cite an example of that test so that we can see that that's being done in their program. And on top of that, we also do a little video call, FaceTime call, where we can actually meet the breeders, ultimately see they're, you know, they're a real person as well, but more importantly, get to meet the dogs, see the premises, see the environment that the dogs are being raised in. And once we go through those processes, we gather that documentation, then they're actually published and verified, and they're then you know, live on our site and able to be found by puppy seekers everywhere. Is that code of ethics, is that uh, like a blanket thing or is that state by state? Because I know different states have different regulations around breeding. That's a great question. And it is state by state. So um, I think there are certain you know points in the legislation that we did have to account for to make sure that you know every breeder in that particular state was meeting their standards. But we also realized that one of the reasons uh, that there are a lot of uh, scams and, and things in the industry is because there's a lack of education as to what to actually look for. And because there's so much variation by state, it can be quite confusing for the, the average puppy owner. So we also, whilst taking into account all of the intricacies of each state, we tried to write it as a blanket overall code, which if you can go onto our website and read through, we spell it out in plain English. We explain why it's important that we have this code clause in there. For the average person who's trying to understand and, and decipher what you know the, the legislation is about, so we've tried to say you know rather than having eight versions, we have the one version, and then we have you know additions for the state where it needs to be a bit stricter as well. And I guess aside from going on and finding your breeder on right poor, of course, how can potential dog owners ensure that they're purchasing from a reputable breeder, and and what should they look out for when acquiring a puppy? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you can definitely come to right ball, but at the very least, there are a few things that you can be doing just to make sure that you're, you know, feeling really confident about the puppy that you find at the end of the day. You know, as I said, at a minimum, making sure the breed is registered with their state, you know, as a minimum. Obviously, great as well if they're part of an association like, you know, your Dogs Australia, your MDBA. But ultimately, not all breeders can be part of an association. A lot of breeds like crossbreeds, like your Cavoodles and your Labradoodles, aren't recognized as pure breeds as part of those associations. So, it's impossible for them to necessarily join that. So, making sure they're at least registered with some kind of body, whether it's their state or right or another association, just means that there's a bit of transparency around that. So, that's important. Also, trying to see their level of experience, their previous litters, understand what their motivation is you know, in their breeding program because most reputable breeders will have you know, a mission and a breeding program sort of vision for, for what they're doing. Definitely check the health testing of uh, the parent dogs. People often ask about the puppies, but actually checking the health testing of the parents is also really important because things like DNA testing and physical health testing on the parents will mean that you know if they're in, in healthy shape and good nick, then that's less likely to be passed on to the puppies. So health testing on the parents is really important too. And then, you know, asking questions about how the puppies are raised, are they being properly socialized, handled? Obviously, best case scenario, you can go visit the breeder in person, but that can be a bit tricky, uh, particularly, you know, the last few years that was almost impossible. So, even getting on a FaceTime call just so that you can meet the breeder, meet the puppies and feel that little bit more confident as well. And 
I think probably the last thing I'd say is as well is, you know, check to see is the breeder interviewing me as well? You know, a lot of reputable breeders will actually, you know, be scrutinizing you as a, as a future home just as much as, as you're sort of checking on them. So, reputable breeders will want to make sure that their pups go to the best home. So, that's another way to look at it too. Of course, you would assume they care about their dogs and what they've raised. So, yeah, that makes sense. We've definitely seen an increase in puppy scams over the past few years. What do you think is driving that and, and how prevalent is it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely uh, a bit of a perfect storm, I think, of a few different um, things coming together. I mean, COVID really exacerbated this. And I, th- I think the stats don't lie. You can see just the increase in puppy scams that were reported to the ATO, you know, in terms of millions of dollars that have been reported in losses over the last two years. And I think it is a perfect storm of a few factors. I think people were much more desperate to get you know, a pet during that time. So, there was a really high drive and desire to get a puppy. Um, and that was coupled with the fact that Breeders were just not able to keep up with that level of demand. Unfortunately, you can't just turn on a tap and you know produce puppies. Good breeders put a lot of planning and, and thought into their litters. And because of that sort of gap between people wanting puppies and they're not being enough, I think a lot of scammers saw an opportunity to sort of jump into the middle of that. And the practicalities of COVID meant that, you know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to visit. It was difficult to build trust. People weren't able to you know, gather as much information as they probably would have. And because they wanted the puppy now, there might have been more of a desire to you know, go through with something um, you know, quicker than usual, perhaps. So, I think there was uh, that sort of perfect storm as a set of factors. And ultimately, like these scammers have gotten quite sophisticated. You know, They went to a lot of efforts in terms of creating very fancy-looking websites, um, almost to the point as well of identity for an impersonation. We've heard a lot of stories about that as well. So, it wasn't easy to sort of uncover that. But uh, I think, yeah, scammers unfortunately saw that opportunity to jump in the middle of that. And yeah, it led to unfortunately a lot of sad stories. Yeah, I heard a lot about it, a lot of them. So, the recent puppy farming bill is currently going through New South Wales Parliament. What are your thoughts on the bill? Yeah, so it's... um. Something that we were actually uh, lucky enough to be asked to come and speak on and write a write a bit of submission to the committee on the bill. So, myself and, and our head vet, Dr. Imogen, went along to Parliament and presented alongside some of the other breeding organizations. I think eliminating puppy farms is something that everyone is in favor of, absolutely. I don't think anyone disputes the premise of that bill and, and what you know it's trying to achieve. But I think the, uh, the specifics of the bill, when you sort of go through some of the particulars, there was a risk that they could actually do more harm than good, particularly because, you know, the idea of rather than eliminating puppy farms, the bill was actually potentially going to impose some very onerous measures on some of the smaller hobby breeders and actually classify them as what they were terming a a companion animal breeding business. So, a lot of those smaller sort of more family and hobby breeders, there was a risk that, again, they'd be put into this larger business classification, which would ultimately mean that they'd have to have things like much higher animal to staff ratios. Um, They would put breeding limits on girls. So, for example, a two-litter limit on breeding girls, which at the moment, again, there's, there's not necessarily a basis in science for that. Most states can say you can go up to four or five. And obviously, it's a question for the vet as well to determine what's healthy. But there were a lot more restrictions being put on that. And I think the risk was that it was going to necessarily drive good breeders out and potentially drive more breeding underground rather than actually surfacing those illegal puppy farms that aren't doing the right thing, potentially putting a little bit more, uh, again, onerous measures on some of the smaller, uh, smaller players. So, I think 
for, for us, you know, the right intent in terms of what they're trying to do, but there was that risk that, yeah, I think it was going to potentially drive a lot of good breeders out of the market. And, you know, ultimately, our view when, you know, coming out of that bill was that we have some great legislation in place at the moment. The question is, we just need it to be enforced. You know, we need it to be properly enforced. And, you know, that's why, for example, with, with Rightpool, we try to use those codes and best practices that exist and just make sure we're enforcing what is already there. And, you know, I think that those are probably the bigger opportunities um, because some of those underground puppy farms weren't necessarily going to be surfaced as a result of the bill. And we need to do more work to find where those are. So do you think maybe like a licensing scheme could work in this place? A hundred percent. I actually think that, and that was one of the the recommendations that I think all of the breeding bodies put together was having a, a really clear universal licensing system. Again, that's one of the challenges at the moment is every state has their own registration and licensing system. Actually, some states don't even have that at a minimum. So, having a universal system and educating owners as well to know, you know, this is what you need to look for. Every breeder has to have this. It's that mix of, as you said, visibility, transparency, education, and then enforcing what's in place. I think that is definitely something that will bring a lot more light and will stop people unknowingly, you know, potentially contributing to the problem because, I don't think there's anyone out there who would say, I want to purchase from a puppy farm. It's, it's unfortunately just the, the lack of awareness of where, you know, where the pups are coming from and, and who they're buying from. And I think a, a licensing system would definitely assist with that. Yeah, for sure. Victoria has a similar bill, which was passed in 2017. Have you noticed a difference between the New South Wales and Victorian markets? Not necessarily. I think that the New South Wales and Victorian markets are um, quite similar. I think one thing I do think is quite good is that Victoria has some great legislation around refund policies as well. They're a bit more advanced in that as well. So, they have a little bit more of a scoped out explanation for buyers around what their rights are in terms of refunds and you know what they're entitled to. And I think that that can be something that other states can look to to implement because it is a bit of a gray area in terms of what you're entitled to as a, as a buyer if you need to you know return a pup or if there was an issue that came up. But I think that the markets themselves are quite similar. And, and, it, and it's funny, I think we, as Australia, we're, a, you know, we're a, a nation of states, but one thing we did notice during COVID was that that sort of uh, interstate travel of pups became much more prevalent because people were, were at home and they were you know, they weren't able to necessarily go visit the breeder and they started to look you know, further afield, especially because there weren't a lot of pups in the market. So, owners were actually more interested in pups from a little bit further afield. So, there was a lot more road transport and and air transport of pups to new homes as well. And that actually probably is a a bit of an interesting uh, argument for having a more universal approach to this. Yeah. It's surprising that was an essential service during those kind of lockdown times, transporting a pup between state when we weren't allowed to travel between states. Yeah, absolutely. And it did cause a lot of um, concern. We we saw it on, on our platform as well about pups having to go across the border and making sure there was the right paperwork and things as well. So, it's definitely something, yeah, you don't necessarily think about in the transport of new pups to new homes. But yeah, it was definitely um, just yeah another reason why all the markets tend to sort of come together rather than it being state by state. I think that's all we have time for today, Nathan. But thank you so much for coming on. Before I finish, you're obviously connecting breeders with um, potential pet owners. What's the most popular dog breed at the moment? Well, it's a great question. I think 
Uh, I mean, when we look at our, our numbers, I think the the Cavoodle is probably still the most popular and the most searched for breed that we find. But I would say as a bit of a uh, up-and-comer, the uh, the Dachshund is definitely uh, also quite popular as well. And I think we've seen quite a few new owners that are, that are very interested in that breed. So those for us are, are definitely two ones that we've seen quite a few searches on over the last probably six to 12 months. Nice. Very interesting. All right. Cheers, Nathan. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning into the Pet Industry News Podcast. And remember to visit our website, www.petnews.com.au to stay up to date with all the latest happenings in the pet industry.